0: The city of Ephesus was a hotbed for opposition to the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla, Paul and now Timothy all worked hard to do the work of Christ in that place and they wanted to see the gospel take root, but Paul and Timothy were met with with opposition. And the reality of Christian ministry is that if the gospel is going to take root in any place, then believers must actively participate with God in the fight of faith. That believers must stand up when the enemy attacks, they must not back down. I'm reminded of our Lord and his willingness to stand up even when opposition came. He calls himself in John 6 and John 10 the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for, for his sheep. He's not like the hired hand who cuts and runs at the first sign of danger. Instead, he, he cares for his own and, and will not abandon them. And in, in a similar way, we, being on the Lord's side, ought to follow his example. That is, that when opposition comes, we don't cut and run. To switch analogies from a flock to a battle, we must stand up. We must not betray our commanding officer when opposition comes. Because if the gospel is going to take root, and if the gospel is going to spread and grow, then we have to be willing to stand up despite the opposition. And um, so Paul encourages Timothy in this way. And let's read these words, beginning in chapter 6 with verse 11, 1 Timothy. This is the word of God. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Here the Holy Spirit, I think, wants us to see... Um, through the pen of the Apostle Paul that believers must actively participate with God in the fight of faith. Believers must actively participate with God in the fight of faith. He's going to give this command in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, and he's going to explain what that looks like. And I would suggest to you in just in simple terms that fighting the good fight of faith demands our active participation. So if we were to just take a verse 11 out of context, we might think that, that our faith or this fight that we're involved in is all up to us. It's all dependent upon us. But the, the reason I say active participation with God is because the rest of the passage shows us that God is behind any success that we have in this fight of faith. So we can't just say, I'm going out into the battle. It's all in my own strength. No, we, we go in the strength that God supplies. Let me show you that from the text. Look at the middle of verse 12. Uh, we'll just read the whole thing. Fight the good, fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, notice, to which you were called. So God's the one who called you to this fight. He's the one who initiated you being in the fight and um, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then skip down to verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So God is not only the one who calls you to this position where you fight for, for this faith, but also or this fight of faith, but also He's the one who Gives any kind of life. Any kind of life that there is all comes from God. And then verse 15, God's the one who brings an end to the battle. At the proper time, uh, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings. So this is talking about the return of Christ. Um, You see that at the end of verse 14. He's going to send the Lord to bring final salvation, a final end to the war. So anything that we accomplish in this battle, any part of this fight in which we are engaged, that that um, results in something good is a result of God. And so, so we have to be actively engaged in the battle. So what does this look like? What does active participate, participation in the fight of faith look like? And there are six things we see in this passage. Um, so take a look at that. There we go. fight of faith demands our active participation. Number one. Um, active participation in the battle requires our putting off. It requires our putting off. Verse 11. Paul says, But flee from these things, you man of God. This phrase, man of God, is, or this title, it's used in the Old Testament. Always used. I think it's used like 70 times in the Old Testament. It's always used to describe a proclaimer, a prophet of God. Someone who speaks on behalf of God. Paul's saying, Timothy, this is you. You are speaking on behalf of God. And so, uh, recognize your, your responsibility here. And Paul is not starting a brand new thought here, you know, start putting on and, and start putting off, putting off, putting on deeds of righteousness, putting off uh, deeds of sin. Instead, he's actually continuing his thought. Notice the first word in verse 11 is the word, but. So, in contrast to the false teachers that he's been talking about who love money and they're constantly working to have this external display of false piety... Um, in order to get a, a more monetary gain, Timothy is to engage in this battle of faith. In contrast to them, he is to engage in the battle of faith. And the idea of Paul calling Timothy to engage in a battle is not new. Because in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, he says, fight the good fight of faith by persevering and by serving Christ with a clean conscience. So this battle is real. And it requires that Timothy... And each of us put off these things. We have to flee from these things. We have to run away from them. Now, what are these things? Because, frankly, in the verses to follow, it doesn't tell us what these things are at the beginning of verse 11. The word these is an antecedent pronoun that points back to the godlessness that we've already seen in verses 1 through 10. So in verses 3 through 5, we saw the proud obsessions and the, the arrogance, of the false doctrine and the teachers there in, in, um, in the, the, the church at Ephesus. And then in verse 6, we saw that they were all about this external form of godliness, which was really just uh, a front because they were doing it without contentment and ultimately they were doing it for the money. And then verse 10 uh, goes on to talk about that, the, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So, what are these things? What are we to flee from? Well, fr- flee from that false doctrine, those um, those pretensions about godliness that are not real, and then this love for money. We need to flee from those things. The reality is that even as Christians, there is an appeal to false doctrine and rebellion against God. There is an appeal for us to just put on a front that looks like godliness to other people, but inside we're, we're full of... Um, are full of sin and evil. We have regular pressures on us to turn away from God and to put on this kind of facade that, that um, shows things differently than they really are. There are constant temptations for us to seek to conform ourselves to these acts of evil, and so we need to actively engage in the battle to constantly be consciously putting these things off. You know, the nature of sin and the temptations and vices of the world is that if you stand still with regard to evil, it will overtake you. That is, if you do nothing, if you're not actively fighting against the evil that is trying to to change you, to to conform you to its standard, then it will overtake you. You simply need to do nothing. But on the other hand, that's not the way it is with spiritual virtues, is it? If you stand still spiritually, in the sense that you do nothing, you're not going to be overtaken with spiritual virtues. You're not going to grow in the Christian life, right? Instead, you need to be actively engaged in this battle, running from sin, fleeing from these things, and pursuing virtue. I'm running after what is right, what is true. I'm not going to stand still. I'm not going to allow the world to squeeze me in its, into its mold. That's what happens when we become passive. The world, the flesh, and the devil all overtake us, and we now become uh, a follower of them. And so we have to be actively engaged in the battle as Christians by putting off, and then notice in the second part of verse 11, putting on. So flee from these things, you man of God, and, here's the putting on part, pursue these six things, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So all of these describe the marks of a godly Christian. Now, this is not everything that you need to do as a Christian. This is not an exhaustive list. Rather, it's representative of the kind of things that you need to be doing. What a, a godly life looks like. Well, a godly life, uh, uh, one that's a person who's actively engaged in the fight of faith is one who is putting on righteousness, this moral uprightness, both internally and externally. A person who's seeking to conform himself to the word of God. He is righteous. He's doing what is just and right. Godliness. second one listed there. It's a general word that describes a person who lives as if God exists. He lives as if he's in a universe where God is in control and how he lives matter. That's important. Remember this morning I was saying that ungodliness is living as if God doesn't exist. Godliness is living as if God exists. Faith is the next one that's listed. It's an ongoing confidence in the gospel and the work of God. It's keeping our eyes fixed on you know, that lifted up Savior who is the ultimate hope of our salvation. And then love, which is the expression of our faith. What is our faith? How does it express itself? And the most fundamental fruit of the Spirit, which I think is why it's listed first, is love. Right? If we summed up all the law, Of the Old Testament are all the commandments. All 613 can be narrowed down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The most fundamental expression of our faith as a Christian. That's what active participation in the fight of faith looks like. Fifth, perseverance. That is that we don't just do this for a short time, right? Anybody can engage in a battle for a short time and then cut and run. But, but a genuine Christian is one who perseveres till the end, right? He, despite opposition and trouble, he's willing to stand his ground. Okay, this is different than what I was talking about before. We stand still and kind of don't do anything. It's kind of inactivity or passive. But standing our ground, that is actually an active thing when we talk about it in terms of battle. Then number six there is gentleness. The calm spirit that's necessary to pursue holiness in the midst of a raging battle. We are gentle. We we don't lose our cool or or um, blow up because we know that our commanding officer's in control and he's going to win. We're on his side and we're going to keep our calm. And we actually serve better when we're calm and gentle, don't we? Active participation in the battle requires putting off. Active participation in the fight of faith requires putting on, and then. Number three, active participation in the battle is not optional. And that's why there's a command here in verse 12, right? Fight the good fight of faith. It doesn't say, you know, if you want to, or, you know, if it seems like it's appropriate at this time in your life, or if you have enough time, fight the good fight of faith. No, it is. Do it. We are in a battle. If we don't fight, we are losing. This analogy... Of battle, it reminds us of Ephesians 6, where Paul says that we are in a spiritual battle, and our job is to stand firm. Our job is to, having done all, to stand firm. I just commend to you Ephesians 6:10 to 17 again, and notice the continual command and expectation that we have. To constantly be holding our ground spiritually, so that the forces of Satan do not overtake us. Active participation in the battle is not optional. We need to engage in the fight. Number four, active participation in the battle requires an eternal perspective. It requires an eternal perspective. Notice the second line of verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, in in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Timothy was to engage in the battle by keeping faith and and a good conscience. Here, Paul says, engage in the battle by having an eternal perspective. Notice how the command points forward and backwards, right? Hold on to eternal life. That sounds future, doesn't it? That hold on to this thing that you're, you're reaching for. And at the same time, to which you were called, you've already done something in the past. So, Both these future and past aspects point forward to what you're supposed to be doing now. This active engagement in the battle that has this eternal perspective. Don't lose sight or drift away from the faith. You have already made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hold on to that. Recognize what you're reaching for, this eternal life. Now, what is this good confession that he's talking about at the end of verse 12? And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some people think that it's referring to baptism, but I would suggest to you that based on the context, it cannot mean that. Because notice what Timothy says in the next verse. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So we're not talking about baptism because he's saying Jesus did the same good confession in the presence of Pilate. And it wasn't being baptized, right? That was earlier in his ministry as a way to to give an example for us. So what is Jesus doing in the presence of Pontius Pilate? What good confession is he making? We'll turn to John 18, and I'll show you. Because whatever this good confession is, I would suggest to you that it's not Baptism. John 18.33, let's see what kind of confession Jesus makes here before Pilate. And you can go to the other Gospels, by the way, and look at his confessions um, before Pilate as well, and it's going to be the same thing. But this one, to me, is the clearest for us, so that's why I'm taking you here. John 18.33, therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered him, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. So this is pretty much the extent of the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. There is more to it than you'll find in the other Gospels. But the main point is that Pilate's trying to figure out is, Are you claiming to be the king of the Jews? Jesus doesn't answer initially, right? He says, "Um, Who told you that? By whose initiative did you even have the authority to ask me that question, he says in verse 34. And then Pilate says, listen, I'm just asking a question, so can you please respond? And Jesus says, well, my kingdom's not of this world. And he goes on to talk about that, and still he hasn't answered the question. Finally, Pilate asks the question again in verse 33, so are you a king? And Jesus finally makes the claim, yes, you say it correctly. I am the king of the Jews. So what is he claiming when he's saying that he is the king of the Jews? He's actually making a good confession that He is the Messiah. Now turn back to 1 Timothy. I think that's what's going on here in chapter 6, verse 13. So, I charge you in the presence of God who lives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession, who testified that He is the Messiah before Pilate, Now go back up to verse 12 and we'll plug that into what we know about Timothy. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made this confession that Jesus is the Messiah in the presence of many witnesses. So you've already made this confession, Timothy. Hold to it. Jesus is the Messiah. You're right about that. So... Active participation in the battle requires putting off, putting on. It's not optional. It requires an eternal perspective. and then, And then notice the weight of responsibility that you have in this. Verse 13 shows us that active participation in the battle has heavenly importance. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. So this is not something that I'm saying happens in a little pocket of the world that's God's unconcerned about, or something. No, this is in the presence of God. Imagine standing before God, and I'm giving you this charge, Timothy, to fight the good fight of faith. God is with you, and God must be obeyed. And then, number six, active participation in the battle demands perseverance. We already saw this with the putting on at the end of verse 11 put on faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. But this is not something that we can just do one time. It's something that we must continue to do all the way till the end. Notice verse 14. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a couple parts to this. So let's see if we can understand it. First, what is the commandment? Well, what is the commandment that Paul has given in this context? seems to me that the main command of the text there's certainly the command to flee from and pursue verse 11 and there's also the command in the middle of verse 12 to take hold of eternal life but the main command seems to be at the beginning of verse 12 it's all about fighting the good fight of faith and i would suggest to you that that's the same thing that paul's talking about in chapter one turn back there because he uses similar language there chapter one verse 18 this command i entrust to you well what command well what command well This command I entrust to you, Timothy, verse 18, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight of faith. So what is the command? It's to fight the good fight of faith. He's saying the same thing in chapter 6. So you must engage in the battle. And we could say how often or how long, and that's what verse 14 answers of our text. It is until the Lord returns. Well, we could also say... um, in what way do we engage in the battle? The nature of our fighting, I would say that it's within the rules. Notice it says without stain or reproach. So there's lots of ways we could be involved in the battle, but we must fight within the rules. Not seeking to accomplish a good goal with evil means. You know, we kind of skirt, go outside the boundaries of what God desires, He wills, and we get to the goal a different way. No, we we do it we, we accomplish God's goal, God's way, by staying within the boundaries of what He's allowed. Stay within the rules, without stain or reproach. It's in, uh, the idea of integrity. The name of our God depends on it. But notice how long it is until the Lord returns. It's until the Lord returns. This is how long we keep this commandment. We have to keep on fighting. So... Maybe you say, "Well, I'm not cut out for this. I'm not a fighter. Um, I didn't sign up for this." Well, frankly, if you are a Christian, you did sign up for it. You you agreed to engage in the battle. If you did, you didn't understand what you're signed up for. The life of a Christian is not a life of 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 puppy dogs and roses, where everything's always going to be good. The life of a Christian is a life of trouble, of persecution. Of battle, of difficulty, of setbacks. Uh, Jesus said, "If they hate, if they hated me, they will hate you." All who desire—Paul said, "All who desire to live godly will be persecuted." It's part of—it's part of the job description. Being a Christian is to be engaged in the battle of faith. And we need to do it all the way until the end. All the way until the Lord returns. We are not done. I mentioned earlier that the nature of evil is that if we do nothing, we will be overtaken by it. But the nature of spiritual virtues, the fruit of the Spirit is not the same same way. If we do nothing when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, we will not be overtaken by this fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't magically happen. Instead, we decline. So maybe a good illustration of this would be a, a picture of a flood that's coming. A flood that's constantly rising. And if we just stay there, we're going to be swept over by the flood. And I'm using the flood as an analogy for evil here. And so our job is to flee. Get to the mountains. And keep on climbing. You See, if we stop at any time, we're going to be overtaken. We have to keep climbing. Get to higher ground. At some point... The flood will slow and recede. But can I say to you that the recession of the flood will not happen in this lifetime? Your responsibility to flee from evil and to run towards righteousness, to get to higher ground, does not end in this lifetime. It will constantly be pursuing you, and so you, not, you must constantly be engaged, actively participating in the work of God. So, fighting the, foot, the, the good fight of faith demands our active participation. And then secondly, in verses 15-16, through 16, we see that fighting the good fight of faith is the work of God. It's the work of God. God provides both the means and the goal of our victory. He provides the means and the goal of our victories. That is, that, that God is our sovereign commanding officer. He knows the end from the beginning. He has plans to restore order where there is chaos. Notice how he is described in verse 15. This is talking about Jesus here, which he will bring about, or actually this is talking about God and what he will do to Jesus, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed and, only so, and the only sovereign, the, the King of kings, Lord of the lords, who alone possesses, Immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. So, all the way up to whom no man has seen or can see, this describes the means to our victory. The means to our victory is the sovereign God who rules over all, our sovereign commanding officer. We see first that He is sovereign. He is the one who brings it about at the proper time. He is the only sovereign we are subject to Him. No one has the ability to usurp His power. And he's also described here in verse 15 as the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you can line up all the kings of the world, line up all the greatest kings of history, emperors. There, there is no king that compares to our king. Even the greatest, like Alexander the Great, People like Him will bow the knee to Jesus because He is the King of kings and Lord of all. Are you confident in that today? That the kings of the earth make their plans, but God is the ultimate ruler and judge. The nations of the earth, Isaiah says, are like dust on the scales. God simply blows and they're gone. They rise up, even whole nations coming together to rise up and raise their fists at the king of kings and god laughed at them from the heaven psalm two. they are no match for our god he is the great king and the great lord he's described as immortal in verse um, 16 he possesses immortality he is incorruptible unable to decay or die and then he is glorious He dwells in unapproachable light, the text says. This phrase describes his amazing habitation, highlights his holiness that no one can approach them with their sin. He dwells in unapproachable light. This is the one with whom Timothy should be most concerned about, right? You're concerned about anything, Timothy. These false teachers are not the ones to be concerned about. Even the devil himself is not the one to be concerned about. Be concerned about the gaze of God, how he sees you, he is the one who is going to provide the means for you to accomplish this victory. He is the only sovereign, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light, and then finally invisible. He is no man, um, whom no man has seen or can see. He is invisible. He is spirit. He cannot be seen. He's utterly, utterly distinct from all of his creation. So He is the means of our victory. And He's also the goal of our victory. Notice at the end of verse 16, "...to Him be honor and eternal dominion." Amen. He deserves and demands our praise. The natural response for us when we see that God is the one behind our fighting, our winning, our victory, the natural response is one of praise. He deserves to be made known for His good deeds he deserves for all the nations to know of His greatness. He deserves for the glory of His name to spread across the earth like the waters cover the seas. And Paul concludes with this expectation for the, the ultimate focus of Timothy and us, which is, to Him be the glory and eternal dominion. He deserves it. Amen. A couple applications here. Number one. It is your job to fight, so don't lie down. Fighting the good fight of faith is your job, so don't lie down. The enemy is opposing us at every turn. And so you need to know who your enemy is. Our fundamental enemy is not another human being. It's not a false teacher, although both of those can be used by Satan by the hands of our enemy. Our fundamental enemy is not another nation or a terrorist group who wants us dead, although those can be used by our enemy. Our fundamental enemy is Satan along with his army of demons. And and the nature of the battle is that we must understand who our enemy is and some of his tactics. You see, the battle that we face, this fight of faith, is less like Many of the wars from history where you kind of see the enemy on the other side and they had different uniforms and so we knew who they were. It's more like the war on terror today where your enemy may very well develop a relationship with you. He might grow up in the same neighborhood as you, work alongside of you for years in advance. He might, he, he might go to a lot of the same places as you, but he has plans to kill you. This is our enemy. Not, not those people, but Satan. That's the way he attacks. He presents himself like a young, harmless tiger cub who will lick your hand and, and allow you to cuddle with him. But when he gets older, he will bite off your hand. And so don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. Don't allow the devil to get an opportunity to know who your enemy is and how he works. And then, secondly, with regard to this one, not lying down is know your enemy and then be sure of your responsibility in the battle. If you're not sure whether you should engage in the battle or if you are having thoughts of turning back, you know, the first sign of intense pressure, you're going to turn and run, then can I say to you that you are not fit to be a Christian. You are not fit to enter the kingdom of God. And you might be saying, well, that's a little harsh. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 62. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So it's not, you know what? I'm going to engage here. I'm ready to get involved in, in this work of following God and fighting sin and pursuing righteousness and doing it till the end. But... And now my plow line is all messed up because I got my eyes fixed on what's behind me. Jesus said, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Another way of saying you are not my disciple. If you are like Lot's wife who's constantly looking back and gazing with a deep longing towards the things of the world and what they offer, then you will not be engaged in the battle. God is looking for people who are willing to fight the fight of faith who know their responsibility. Jesus said that before we build, we count the cost. And so it should be no different when we come to the Christian life. We don't just blindly walk into the Christian life without considering the great cost that God requires of us, right? We are in a battle, and we must fight. So are you a soldier of the cross? Are you on the Lord's side? Fighting the good fight of faith is your job, so don't lie down. Secondly, fighting the good fight of faith is God's job, so don't stand alone. Fighting the good fight of faith is God's job, so don't stand alone. In other words, don't think that you can fight this battle on your own. You can't fight it with your own strength. You can't guarantee victory. You can't even take your next breath through your own strength. Have you considered that? Every breath that you take is a gift from God. So you can't fight this battle alone. This is much harder than taking a breath, right? Satan is a fierce enemy. We are soldiers in God's battle. So recognize Satan's finiteness, right? He's only going to be around for a time. There's going to be an end to him. We know that from Revelation chapter 20. But also remember that God is infinite and He has guaranteed the final victory. Listen to Revelation 12, 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So watch out for this animal, this fierce, vicious animal that's been cornered. He's already defeated. He's only got a short time, and and he's going to be nasty when he's backed into a corner. That's where he is now, because Jesus has already conquered sin and death with the cross. It's only a matter of time before it's finally fulfilled. That's why Satan's so vicious right now, and he's going to get worse when it comes to the tribulation. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So how do you render powerless someone who is as fierce and as wicked and vicious as Satan? We don't. Christ does. He rendered him powerless when He defeated him through death. We partake of that by, by following Christ, by, by sharing in His death through salvation. So we know that there's victory coming, don't we? 1 Corinthians 15, 54, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? You kind of hear this taunt of death. We're not scared of you. O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan is a powerful enemy he is the most powerful creature that's an important word there creature in the entire universe but see we serve the uncreated god who is much more powerful he is a powerful enemy but he is limited isn't he he is finite he had a beginning he will have an end his time is only going to be short-lived some may call him the god of this world second corinthians 4 4 small g but we serve the god of the universe He may operate for a time as the king, small k, of many kings, but we serve the king, capital K, of all kings. He may have a lot of knowledge, but our master knows everything. Satan may have great power. He may be stronger than us, and he is, but our master is more powerful. He's all-powerful, invincible. Satan may be able to move quickly from one place to another, but our master is everywhere present. One day Satan will be bound and destroyed, but our master will never be bound or destroyed. Every action and end of Satan is ordained and permitted by our sovereign God who rules over all, and God will bring Satan to his knees. Are you confident in that today? Martin Luther taught us a great hymn, The Prince of Darkness Grim, We Tremble Not For Him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. It's only a matter of time. God is our Master. God is the victor. We are overcomers through Him. Don't be fearful in this fight of faith. Stand up. Be proud because God is on your side so I say to you, what we're going to sing here in just a minute, Soldiers of Christ, arise. And put your armor on. Strong, and not your own strength, but strong in the strength which God supplies through His eternal Son. Strong in the Lord of hosts. And in His mighty power. To in the strength of Jesus' trust is more than conqueror. We can do this. Because God is on our side. Let's pray. Father, what a, a terrifying thing it is for us to fall into the hands of an angry devil. But how much more terrifying would it be to fall into the hands of You, the angry God? Lord, we acknowledge that Satan, in comparison to You, is nothing. He is like the, the kings of the nations. He's like dust on the scale. You simply blow and he's gone. And that time is coming. But we should not take him lightly. We should not just act like we can stroll through or skip through the Christian life with no problems no opposition. We will be much um, maligned and opposed by him and by his forces. So we must take this responsibility to fight the good fight of faith seriously. And so we need to stand up. We need to, to actively participate in this work that you are doing. Thankful that you ultimately provide the means and the goal of our victory. That it cannot happen apart from You, the Sovereign, the Only Sovereign, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. And so to You be honor and dominion forever. We pray for Your help as we fight this fight of faith. May we not become complacent in this battle. Help us to persevere in it all the way till the end to recognize the great danger of embracing even the littlest of sins. Flee from these things, the love of money, false doctrine, the, the, the scandal of external godliness only when we are internally corrupt. Help us to flee from those things and pursue after righteousness and godliness, faith, and love, perseverance. Help us to do that with the strength that you supply.